Lord, I ask you to bless this message that I am about to give. Lord, I pray that my words would only be your words and that what is left in the hearts and minds of, of those who are here is what you want them to, uh, to take with them. So I uh, just thank you, Father, in advance for uh, how you're going to do that and all the ways that you're going to accomplish that. Just bless it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're still in our uh, Light That Leads Us Home series, and so <clears throat> we began this four weeks ago. Now we're to the fourth Sunday of Advent, and um, with that, we're going to light the fourth Advent candle. As the time of the Lord's coming draws near, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord so that love may have a place to dwell. The Mighty One has done great things. Holy is God's name. The light of the world is coming. With Mary, our spirits rejoice in God our Savior. God's mercy endures from generation to generation for those who are in awe of God. The proud, the rich, the mighty no longer have power over us. The lowly are lifted up and the hungry are satisfied. We see the light of God shining over the land. We light a fourth candle today in anticipation of the wondrous birth. Let us open our hearts that love may have a place to dwell. All right. Well, the movie, you know, everybody has their favorite Christmas movies, you know, the ones that you just have to watch, otherwise it's not really Christmas. <laughs> and uh, for a large part of my life, White Christmas was that movie. And it, there's kind of an interesting story behind that. Um, I didn't see it until 1974, which was my freshman year in uh, college at Butler, which beat Purdue, uh, by the way, yesterday. Yeah. Um, so it was 1974, Christmas time. It was a few days before Christmas, and probably 99% of the student population had gone home. And they'd taken finals and gone home to start their Christmas break. Um, however, the only ones of us that were really still on campus were members of the basketball team. Uh, we had a tournament that began, I think, the day or two days after Christmas. And so we stayed behind, continued to practice right up until like the 23rd or the 24th when we got a day or two off, then we had to come right back. So on this particular night, my roommate, who was also my teammate named Doug, who some of you may have remembered was here about a year ago, um, he said we had to watch TV that night because White Christmas was on. I told him I've never seen that. He looked at me like I was an alien. <laughs> he said it was the best Christmas movie ever, and it was a holiday staple of his family. So 
that night in a deserted fraternity house, I was introduced to Wallace and Davis, the Haynes sisters, <laughs> General Waverly, and the rest of this 1954 film's cast of characters. And it's really been a pretty rare year that I haven't watched it at some point around the holidays. Uh, so I was initially really excited when I saw that, you know, that movie had been paired up with the devotional reading as a way to sort of talk about God's love. Um, but that excitement kind of faded as I started to kind of ponder that and think, well, okay, you know, the scripture this week, which we're going to look at in a moment, is from Luke. It's essentially the two verses about the birth of Jesus. So how does this movie, which doesn't have the slightest religious or theological overtone at all, tie into the birth of the Savior of the world? But then, you know, as I thought about it through the week, Little by little, it was kind of like God just kept peeling different layers of the onion off. And I started to really see what could be developed from this. And that it actually was a pretty perfect movie to use as a backdrop uh, on, uh, for a message on love. So we're going to look at the scripture today, which is not that. All right, I don't think I may have it in there. So you'll just have to listen. If, there's, if you have a Bible, it's two verses. It's Luke chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And undoubtedly, you have heard some form of this passage before. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. You see, love was born that day, but it was a love unlike any other. And I think often it's very difficult for modern day people to kind of get their head around just exactly what kind of love we're talking about here. And I think a large part of that is because our culture loves everything. Just for example, I love the new Star Wars movie. I love my BFF. I love pizza. I love my dog. I love my mom, dad, sister, brother, grandparents. I love my husband or wife. I love my job. I love God. I love my cute little town. I love crossword puzzles. I love going to the beach. Now, you know, do we really think that all those different examples of love are talking about the same thing? Well, of course not. You know, no sensible person would come to the conclusion that loving peanut butter and loving their spouse is equivalent somehow, and unless you have a really, really wrong relationship with peanut butter. <laughs> or you don't value your wife all that much. Um, But when a word is consistently overused, primarily because of misuse in this case, it really obscures the meaning and clouds the significance of what occurred in Bethlehem so long ago. And so what I want to do today is to go back 
And I know sometimes people don't like it when I do this, but uh, I th there's a real purpose for it today. We're going to actually look at some Greek. And the reason for that is that the Greek language has four distinct words, primarily four, for the word love. So they, for what we refer to as love, they actually have four different words that describe different aspects of love or different characteristics of love. And so they're also embedded in kind of a moral hierarchy, which is interesting. And it goes from love that is based more on instinct on up to uh, love that has more social interaction, more choice, and even more mutual regard for one another. So looking at them in detail really is going to help us, I think, better understand and appreciate the kind of love that came from heaven to earth to show us the way. And so point number one, and the first Greek word, is that the love of Christmas is not eros. Now, eros is the, the lowest form of love, if you follow the Greek thinking, and it was named after the Greek god of fertility. And it, in its initial uh, usage, represented the idea of sexual passion and desire. Okay? Um, eros is a love that is felt particularly in the body. Um, trembling, excitement, elation, joy, all of those kinds of feelings. But it's also sort of colored and underpinned by deep and even beautiful procreative urges. C.S. Lewis distinguishes Eros from natural sexual urges and lusts because he said Eros is a state of the heart and while it is intimately related to sex, sex can exist and often does exist without Eros even being a part of it. When it's good and right, it can lead to children, family, joy, and laughter. But Eros is usually alone, Eros alone, is usually not enough to sustain a relationship over the long term. Eros is exalted in beautifully idealistic love, usually between a man and a woman, but it can also be platonic and extend to deeply intimate friendships. Socrates defined Eros as also working with the soul to recall knowledge of beauty and even contribute to an understanding of spiritual truth. Now, I'm going to show you a clip from White Christmas. And uh, in this clip, George Clooney's mother, um, see, I figured you would know who that is. If, listen, if I said Rosemary Clooney, most of you were like, who? It's George Clooney's mom, okay? Um, what? Okay, they're related. Um, is going to sing a little bit of Eros Gone Bad. Dick. Yes, honey? Let's not do the number we rehearsed this afternoon. Play Blue Skies, anything. But, but the number sounded great at rehearsal, baby. I know it did, but I just... Uh, I, I... Oh, it's a wonderful number, honey. Come on, let's do it. No. Please do
So she's singing about love almost as if it's a person, right? And it's a person that's wronged her in some way. And it was sort of in that same vein that the Greeks viewed Eros in some cases as dangerous. Uh, They saw it as fiery, as irrational, a form of love that could just kind of take hold of you and possess you, which was interestingly an attitude that was shared by many um, spiritual thinkers later on, including C.S. Lewis. Eros involved this loss of control, and that's what kind of frightened the Greeks about it. And it's kind of odd that that's the way they viewed it, because isn't that what so many people now seek in a relationship? Don't people hope to fall madly in love? What does madly mean if it's not kind of a loss of control? This whole elevated buzz of Eros love is actually said to sort of naturally fade within a year of its beginning. Isn't that interesting? Is it because it's too exhausting? It's too all-consuming? Maybe we just get lazy, comfortable in a relationship, and so you don't try as hard. But see, all these reasons are perfect reasons why Eros just can't describe the love that came at Christmas. See, the love of God is anything but dangerous and irrational, and it certainly doesn't fade after a year. So the love that came at Christmas was not in the form of an Eros kind of love. Not often I'm ahead of myself. (laughs) The love of Christmas is also not philia love. Um, Philia is the love of the soul. It's an easy love and affection, and it's kind of bent more towards our own natural tastes and perfection and preferences. Uh, you You could probably figure out if you didn't already know this, Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love, and that's where it takes its name from, from the Greek word philia. It's typically about friendship, and it's the kind of friendship that you feel towards people who are like you, who have the same interests as you, who uh, same social circles, 
style, etc. If we were looking for a scriptural account of this kind of love, it would probably best be described in the relationship between David and Jonathan. Um, for example, in 1 Samuel we read, After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And see, so Philia is concerned with this kind of deep comradely fellowship um, that can even be developed between brothers in arms who have fought side by side on a battlefield. It was about showing loyalty to your friends and sacrificing for them, as well as, as, well as maybe even sharing your emotions with them. And so we see this kind of love in the movie in this relationship that develops between the characters of Bob Wallace and, and Phil Davis. Sir, it's just my arm, What sir. do you got? It looks pretty bad. Yeah, it's nothing but a scratch. Hey, Davis, how you feeling? Oh, pretty good, Captain. I just dropped by to thank you for saving my life. Well, it was a life worth saving, sir. Well, I appreciate it. And I want you to know something, Davis. Anytime I can do anything for you, anytime, any place, you, you just pick up a phone, huh? Oh, uh, thank you, sir. So long, Davis. Oh, I'm sorry. That's all right, Captain. I'll see you. Uh, Captain? Huh? Uh, you could do one little tiny favor for me. What's that? Well, sir, I've, uh, I've kind of written a little song, you see, and I thought perhaps when we got back to the States, when this is all over, you know, I thought uh, maybe if you put this song in your act, it might be a big hit for you. Well, sure. Just just pick up the phone. Yeah. Uh, Captain, I, uh, I just happen to have it with me right here. What's okay? it? Yeah. Well, this is for two people. It's, it's a duet. Yeah, it needs two people, two dynamite entertainers. But I work alone. I do a single. Who do you figure on for the other hunk of dynamite? Well, uh, I, I happen to know a fellow captain. He's uh, pretty funny in living rooms, kind of has a fair voice, you know, and I... Uh, how about me? <laughs> I do a single, you see. Yeah, yeah, well, that's all right, Captain. I, I wouldn't want you to feel any special obligation in any way. I'd... Oh, so. well. Okay, Dynamite, we'll, we'll give it a whirl, huh? <laughs> okay, Captain. Good luck. Bye.
probably could have cut it off maybe a little before then, but I just love the word boffo. Had to get boffo in there. She doesn't hear that word used much anymore. Also, if you ever happen to watch the movie again, there's an editing um, cut that's wrong in there. If you notice, when um, the captain sits down on the bunk, he sits on the corner of the bunk. All right. The next shot, they're sitting side by side. And then the next shot, he's back on the corner of the bunk again. So just one of those little funny things that you pick up in movies sometimes. But these two guys were brought together by this shared experience that they had during the war. And um, from that, they formed a friendship, and then ultimately they became a very successful partnership. And that's really what you saw in the clip. But despite the fact that philia love has a lot of positive qualities, it's never used in a command to men to love God. Probably because it represents affection more than anything else. And God wants more than affection from those who worship him. Biblical scholar William Barclay writes the following. Philia was a lovely word, but it was a word of warmth and closeness and affection. It could only properly be used of the near and the dear. Christianity needed a much more inclusive word than that. However, philia is also described as being kind of a negative or shallow love, which can be natural and exclusive and conditional. And the love of God towards men is so much more than affection. It's in no way shallow. God's love carries no conditions. It's available to everyone, regardless of who you are, who you've become, or what you've done. And so we can say that the love that came at Christmas was not in the form of philia love. The love that came at Christmas is also not storge love. Now this particular word in the Greek means or really describes a love of community and family. Storge may be used as a general term to describe the love between truly exceptional friends and the desire for them to care compassionately for one another. It's a physical show of affection that results from a very pure motive. Um, it could be a hug or a kiss or another expression of genuine affection. In, in a very positive sense, this is the kind of love that binds families together so that no matter what sort of external forces come against them or even you know, what may happen within the family, it's this sort of love that continues to hold them together in a unity and that the group then remains complete and unbreakable. But in, in a negative sense, it can bind a unit such as a family or a group together so well that it rejects anybody who's not already a part of the group. It could exclude immigrants and aliens, for example, 
for no better reason that they aren't a part of this particular group. And there's no opportunity for this unit to open up and accept people who aren't originally part of them. Storge is often dutiful, sometimes unfeeling, but very strong nonetheless. But it was this, <clears throat> this type of love that prompted um, Bob Wallace, who's played by Bing Crosby, to go on national television and make this appeal for his general. Like Eddie told you, that song is uh, for the 151st Division. The officers and the men under the command of Major General Tom Waverly. I hope a lot of you guys were listening because uh, I have something I want you to do for me. Yes, don't you want to sit down? No, no, sir. If you just walk me around the barn a few times, I think it'll be fine, sir. Yes, it's a little too fast, sir, if we just slow down a little bit, sir. Oh! I know, I, I know it's murder asking you to leave your homes on Christmas Eve and... Certainly, a trip like this is no bargain, although it shouldn't be too tough for the fellows who live in the New England area, but remember this. Nobody connected with the show is getting anything out of this, nothing at all, except what we're offering you, a chance to give the nicest Christmas gift you'll ever get to the nicest guy we'll ever know. Remember, then, your objective is Pine Tree, Vermont. Synchronize your watches, then, for Operation Waver. And it's a very positive thing, right? It's, a, it's this gathering together, this sense of obligation that they feel as a way to, uh, to bless this man that uh, they served under. But the thing about Storge is it's also powerful enough to be a, a real hindrance towards spiritual growth. Uh, because family and culture can tie you down. And if you are that much in relationship with it, then it's very difficult to be able to, to truly grow spiritually. In other words, it's a love that could, in fact, pull you to a lesser path in life. And see, the love of God is not dutiful. It's never unfeeling, and it is absolutely not exclusionary in any way. In fact, it's just the opposite. John 3.16 is perhaps the most well-known verse in the Bible, and with good reason. For it fat, flatly rejects exclusion of any kind and proclaims that God so loved the world. Not a subset, not one group more than another, but everyone, totally, equally, and completely. And so obviously the love that came at Christmas was not in the form of Storge. And finally, we get to the love that actually did come at Christmas. And that love is called agape. Agape speaks of the most powerful, most noble type of love, which is sacrificial love. It's a love that you extend to all people, to where, whether they're family members or distant strangers. Uh, one interesting note that I uh, ran across was that um, the Greek agape was later translated into Latin as the word caritas. And it is from caritas that we get the English word charity, 
which is why if you ever wondered the King James Bible uses the word charity for love, this is why. That's kind of how it came to be. Uh, because the King James was translated from the Septuagint, which was the Latin translation of the Greek and Hebrew. And so that's sort of how that all came to pass. So just a little historical background. Agape kind of love puts the one who is beloved first. And it sacrifices pride and self-interest and possessions for the sake of that beloved. Agape love is more than a feeling. It's an actual act of the will. This kind of willful, sacrificial love is uh, present in this movie, too. Stand high! someone lay down his life for his friends. And I think that movie so perfectly sh exhibits that in the fact that all of these men who had other things to do, certainly, at Christmas time, laid down what it was that they were going to do and came because they wanted to love, honor, and respect this man that they had served under, someone that they cared deeply about. I think we can see it even more clearly in the birth of an infant who laid down a life of glory and majesty to come to this world. And we see it the clearest of all in the sacrifice of God's only son, Jesus, who very literally laid down his life for each one of us sitting here. This is the love that God has for his people. This is the love that came at Christmas. 
This is the love that we celebrate today. There is no higher word for love in the New Testament. Agape conveys what God wants us to be and what he wants us to do. Various lexicons define it as an unselfish love, ready to serve, a love that values and esteems, a love that sacrifices self for another, even to the extent of death. Agape loves without being loved. It seeks man's highest good. Jesus had it. Stephen had it. And to be a child of God, you must have it too. Chris, you want to come forward now? <clears throat> when we were here the other day, um, in the, th the Thursday time of prayer that we have every week, um, I could, I usually sit over there, and Chris usually sits over there. And I could hear this frantic pecking going on. I knew she was typing. And um, she shared later what it was that, uh, that God had shared with her. And I thought it was so appropriate as far as a tie-in with this message of love that I asked her if she would be willing to share it uh, with everyone today. And she said she would. So let's get you a microphone. When I was here Thursday, um, I got this vision when I was praying, and it was a vision of this room, and all of you were here, and um, there was somebody in this room, I didn't see a face, I just saw the back, but they were placing crowns on the heads of everyone here, but he wasn't placing the crown on the head until the, the person lit up, it was like a light bulb lighting up, okay? And each time one of those people lit up, the crown was on the head. And this is what he told me to share with you. It is a choice for each of you to make to open yourselves up to who you really are. To not make this choice is to deny the truth of why the Son of God came to this earth. It is to deny why he lived here among us as a living example of the one who sent him. And it is to deny the suffering death and resurrection of the one who came to restore that identity. Don't celebrate this season with empty words of worthless actions. Celebrate this season with a decision to accept that identity that gives you the crown. This is the greatest gift that you can give yourselves and in turn give to the people you love. Isn't that good? See, the Christmas story is at the various, very simplest of levels about the love of God pursuing you. And so today, ask God to help you surrender to his love. And then also to Ask him how to, to show you to how you can live in that love. Toward your family, toward 
friends, towards people you work with, towards people you don't like. So I would ask the uh, worship team to come forward again. And also uh, for our prayer ministers to come up and be available. And as I've said before, if you have any kind of a prayer need, we encourage you to go uh, to seek out one of these people. If that need may be greater than what you think today might be able to handle, then come tonight. We have teams of people that are here just to pray for you. But today in particular, if you have a love problem, whether it's a problem with loving yourself, which is probably the biggest love problem that exists, or if you have a problem loving others, or if you have a problem loving God, that's a big one too. For a lot of different reasons, people have a problem loving God. Maybe it was because of something that they believe he did to them or to someone they love. And so there's an issue there. Well, the way to get rid of that issue is by praying about it. So I really encourage you to come. If, if there's any one of those things that is troubling you, then... Uh, we would really love to see all of them get fixed. And they can be here today. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. And I thank you for the blessing that you've been. And I thank you most of all for your agape. The love that is free and unconditional. That is constant. That does not look at who or what we are. Does not look at the sin that exists in our lives, but simply calls to us and says, son, daughter, I love you. I ask that you would bless each and every person here. We give you thanks and praise for them and for their lives and their families. Bless them in this very hectic week before we celebrate the birth of your son. Let all of the errands and all of the various and sundry things that, that just have to be done this week, let those all just go quickly, completely, so that everyone here has the opportunity to truly relax and, and worship the birth of your son. Give you thanks and praise now, and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.